Hello, my name is Mario Morales, and I'm one of the elder candidates for Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church. Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church is a church plant effort seeking to plant a confessional Reformed Baptist Church in the Joliet area. We are doing this while utilizing, as our confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And so for those who have been joining our church planting efforts and those who seek to join, and even for those who want an overview, of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we are here providing an overview of what the Confession of Faith is teaching. Our desire is to slowly go through the Confession once we constitute as a local church. So far we've gone through chapters 1 all the way through chapter 8, and today we find ourselves in chapter 9. Chapter 9's title is Of Free Will, and it consists of five paragraphs. And what we're going to see in chapter 9 is really the four stages of man's will. What we'll also notice is that the confession does not deny that man has free will. It only affirms that man's free will goes through stages within existence, within man's existence. Not all people will go through all stages. But it only affirms that within Scripture, Scripture teaches that man's will, in general, has gone through and will go through at least four stages. And so, first stage is going to be man's will pre-fall. The second stage of man's will will be man's will post-fall. The third stage is man's will post-salvation. And the fourth stage will be man's will in glorification. And so let's look at paragraph one. Paragraph one is going to be a general statement about man's will. Let's read through paragraph one first, and then we'll slowly go over it with an overview. So paragraph one reads this way. God has endued the will of man with that natural ability and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And so some good things to notice here is that this paragraph begins with the statement God has. And so when, we're gonna, when we consider man's free will, we must never forget that it is first God who has done. It is God's will that we must consider over man's will. Man is not above God. God is above man. And so the, the confession says here that God has endued, or God has given, that is, God has given man an ability to act in a certain way. It says God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty. That is, that man, that, that's the confession affirming that man does indeed possess freedom of will. It goes on to say, with that natural ability, and power of acting upon choice. Man has the ability to choose. Man is not an automaton. It goes on to say that this power of acting upon choice that is neither forced. There's nothing that forces the will of man to act one way or another. Man has free will. Nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. This phrase 
might be hard for some of us to understand, but really what it's talking about is um, by necessity of nature, it means that God created man not in a way where he could only choose good or he could only choose evil. God created man with a natural ability to choose good or to choose evil. And so that's a general statement about how God created man how God created man with free will. And so let's look at paragraph two. And paragraph two is really going to hone in on man's will pre-fall. Let's read the paragraph first, and then I'll go through it again and just nuance it. So paragraph two reads this way. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. And so let's go over it again. Man in a state of innocency. This phrase is used to focus on Adam, on Adam and Eve, really. They were created in a state of innocency. They had the ability, though, and the power and the freedom to do that which was good or that which was evil. It goes on to say that man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God. But, and we all know the story, we all know the story of what happened in the garden, but here we're talking about man's will. But yet was mutable. This word mutable just means that man's will had the ability to change. Although Adam was created with the ability to do good, if we remember from paragraph one, he also was created with the ability to do evil. That is a change in, in his, that is the ability to change with his will. And so it says, but what yet was mutable, his will was mutable so that he might fall from it. And that it is referring back to his state of being created innocent or without sin. Looking at paragraph three now, paragraph three is going to focus now on man's will post-fall. So this is the second stage that man's will goes through. And this is sinners in general. This is, this is, this is now uh, presenting us with the idea that man is in need of covenantal grace. And so let's read paragraph three, and then I'll go over it again and nuance it. Paragraph three says, man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And so here it begins to focus now on really man's ability. Paragraph one talked about what God has done and what God, how God has endued man with a, a will 
that was created innocent and yet with the ability to choose good or evil. And in paragraph two, we were presented with really Adam being born in a state of innocency with that free will and how the will was mutable. It was able to change and causing him to be able to fall from a state of innocency. And we know that he did. It affirms that. Here in, in paragraph three is where it, it begins to affirm that idea. Man, and we could say man has fallen, but man by his fall in a state of sin, this is Adam, he has fallen from a state of innocency, now has fallen into a state of sin, he has wholly, this means that all that is man, both of body and spirit, of mind and soul, all of man is wholly, wholly infected. But here it's specifically still talking about man's free will. Man has wholly lost all ability to, of will. All ability of will to do what? Now to do, to be able to choose between good and evil. And we don't mean just... I mean, we know that we can do good things, but this is going to um, really explain what it means by good. It says, man has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good. And, God, and this good is defined here now as that good which accompanies salvation. So as a natural man, so that is all men, men and women that are born from Adam and Eve, so that natural man being altogether averse from that good, meaning a change from that good, or that, that state of innocency, and now dead in sin, that's the state of sin, now this natural man is not able by his own strength to convert himself out of that state of sin, or to prepare himself thereunto. And this means simply just prepare himself for this conversion. And so we see that man still has free will. His free, he, he's not, in a sense, changed from being able to do anything, whether good or evil. All it means is that when man, that all it means is that man now does indeed do evil, but that any good that he does is not good unto salvation. He cannot earn his salvation or act in, in good ways that are acts of righteousness. So he, will, he can continue to will things and do things, but now his, sin has totally affected, we know all things, but in this way it has affected his will, so that his will is now corrupt. And so let's look at paragraph four. And paragraph four is really talking about man's state of grace. So man's will in a state of grace. This is really freedom from bondage. Um, so paragraph four reads this way. We'll read through paragraph four, and then I'll go over it again and nuance it. Paragraph four reads, One God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and, by his grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that, he does not perfectly 
nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. And so we see here, if we look at paragraph 4, it begins again with God's actions, what God has done, in this case, in redemption, in saving a dead sinner and bringing him to spiritual life. It says, when God converts a sinner, because remember, paragraph 2, I'm sorry, paragraph 3, says that the sinner, those that person that's dead in sin, cannot convert himself. It is God here, it says, when God converts a sinner, it affirms it is God who does this action. When God converts a sinner, and when God translates him into, uh, into the state of grace, and this is what paragraph 4 is now affirming, that the will can move from a state of sin to a state of grace. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage of sin. This is pointing back to paragraph 3. Man's will in paragraph 3 is under bondage to sin. Man's will in paragraph 4, having been converted by God, is, is now freed from his natural bondage under sin. And it goes on to say, by his grace alone, that is God's grace alone, this man is, or God enables him, enables this man freely now to will and to do that which is spiritually good. So if you remember in paragraph three, man can do good, but he can't do spiritual good unto salvation. But in paragraph four, or, or we can even talk about sanctification, but in paragraph four now, it says that God, by his grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. But man still finds himself um, affected by the state of sin. So man now is really in this twofold state. Well, what we'll see here is that man is really in a twofold state, a state of sin and in a state of grace. And it says here, Yet so that he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, and remember it's nuanced with spiritual good, but does also will that which is evil. And so in paragraph 3 we saw that all mankind is born now in a state of sin and misery. He can freely choose to do good and evil, but all the good that he does is, is not righteous Acts. It's not acts of righteousness leading unto salvation or even out of salvation. That man has an inability to convert himself. And really now, man, do, man is now capable of willing and doing actions that are evil. So that no matter whether good or evil, all of our actions are unpleasing to God. But in paragraph 4 now, we see that in a state of grace... God converts this person and it affects the will so that now he is able to do acts of righteousness, acts that are pleasing of God. But man still finds himself in this state of grace is that he is still capable of doing acts of unrighteousness. And so this now points us to paragraph 5. Paragraph 5 is really man in a state of glory. What we're going to see now is that how in paragraph 2, Man in a state of innocency, or let's just say specifically Adam, he was born with a will that could change. And what we'll see is that in a state of glorification, 
or in man's state of glory, man is created, or man is now given a will that is that does not change. It is immutable. And so let's read paragraph five, and then we'll go back over it, and I will nuance it. Paragraph five reads this way. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. That's very. That's a very straightforward, very easy, I think, paragraph to understand now, given paragraphs one through four. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory. This, this is just contemplating man in his unchanging state of glory only. So now having just done an overview of chapter nine, let us now consider chapter 10. It might be helpful to remember or to be reminded at this point that the confession, each chapter of the confession isn't a standalone chapter. Each chapter is built upon what was said before and in many ways it hearkens to what might come after it. So it might be helpful to remember chapter 3 discussed God's decree. That it is God who does all his sovereign and holy will and that all things that he does or that are done are done for his glory. Including the fall of man. Where in chapter 6 it talks about the fall that happens in the garden and our need for salvation. Which points immediately to the next chapter, chapter 7 of God's covenant where we are presented with God's plan of redemption through the covenant of grace. And that points then to chapter 8, which is the mediator of this covenant of grace between God and man, namely Jesus Christ. And before we can begin to see how that unfolds in redemptive history, chapter 9 begins to, or ch chapter 9 introduces us with man's inability. Even though he has free will in the state of sin, man is unable to save himself. And in chapter 9, it shows us what man is capable of doing in his state of grace. Because God has converted the sinner, he can now will to do that which is good and pleasing unto God while still struggling with doing actions of evil. Chapter 10 through chapter 13, well really chapters 10 through 20, are all the things that happen within the covenant of grace. Chapters 10 through 13 focus on the covenant of grace from God's perspective, or you could really say God's actions within the covenant of grace. And then chapters 14 through 20 really focus on man's perspective, or the things that man does within the covenant of grace, and the, the things that man is able to do within the covenant of grace. So the first divine action within the covenant of grace. And this isn't meant, when we talk about chapters 10 through 20, there's not a chronological order. These things don't happen in this order. But really chapters 10 through 13 are lumped in that way, again, to affirm the divine acts of God. And the first divine act that we're introduced with in chapter 10 is of effectual calling. And chapter 10 has four paragraphs. And let's consider paragraph one, which is effectual calling defined. 
So I will read paragraph one, and then we'll go back and I will nuance it. Paragraph one reads this way. Those whom God has predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they can't come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so let's go back to the beginning. Those whom God hath predestined unto life. This points us back to the covenant of grace earlier in the confession where God has predestined a people. He has elected a people unto eternal life. Those whom God has predestined unto life. He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time. That is in time and space, God has brought about redemption according to his appointed time, according to his accepted time. He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. One commentator notes or says it this way, the basis of the act of effectual calling is the predestination of God. That which God has done in eternity, he brings to fruition in time in the life history of the believer. And so how does God do this? The confession goes on to say, by his word and by his spirit. These are the means employed by the Lord in effectual calling, the scriptures and the work of the Holy Spirit. Together, word and spirit produce this internal work of faith, which this work has three specific facets. And we'll see that this work, what it does is it enlightens the minds, it gives a new heart, and it renews the will. And this, this order does not imply any chronological or sequential acts. It's just affirming that this is what the scripture teaches. And so going back to the confession, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, this points us back to the previous chapter, chapter 9, Paragraph three, the, the, the will of man in the state of sin. So out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to, we could say a state of grace, to grace and to salvation, a state of grace and salvation. And this by the work of Jesus Christ. This is all pointing to what was said before. Chapter seven of the covenant of grace, of the covenant. Chapter 8 of the Mediator, Ch chapter 9 in paragraph 3, the state of sin, and paragraph 4, a state of grace. This is all building blocks, building upon what was said before. So, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation, and notice here, sin and death now contrasts with grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And so how, how does this... How does this work itself out? 
in three ways, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. And so one truth that we can pull out from this is that sin has corrupted the mind. Another commentator notes, true conversion comes by way of human rational faculties. It is not a mystical experience suddenly thrust upon the individual. Rather, God, through the Word and Spirit, brings truth to the mind, granting light so that it is able to comprehend the nature of that truth. The confession goes on to say, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh. The truth here, sin has even corrupted the heart. Our hearts are stony hearts. They are only capable of doing actions, whether good or evil, in a state of sin, actions which are unrighteous acts that are not pleasing to God. But the Lord takes away this heart of stone and gives us now a heart of flesh. And then the third thing it says here is that it also it renews their wills, renewing their wills. Truth here, and we saw in chapter 9 that indeed, sin does corrupt the will. While a man still has free will, in the state of sin, his will is corrupted. And then it says, he does this by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. His almighty power, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The result is that with enlightened minds, able to understand the gospel as it is revealed in scripture, new pliable hearts which are governed by the spirit and wills that are alive by God's spirits, they are effectually drawn to Jesus Christ. And that's what that next statement says. And effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Without, without new minds, without new hearts, without renewed wills, we will never turn to Christ, who is the mediator of this covenant of grace, of that way of salvation. Without these things, without the work of this effectual calling, we will never go or never be drawn to Jesus Christ. His confession goes on to say, yet so as they come most freely, again, this affirmation of free will, but now in the state of grace, Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so you see now, hopefully you see the language being drawn, like why chapter 9, why are we talking about free will? Well here, because it's hard to not talk about the will of man when we're talking about effectual calling. And really, all this just affirms the sovereignty of God in redemption. That last phrase, being willing, being made willing by his grace. You'll notice that paragraph one ends with affirming the grace of God. Now let's look at paragraph two. Now paragraph two is going to begin to introduce the source of this effectual calling. And it's going to further affirm that it is not man, but it is God who does the act of this calling. So we'll read paragraph two. And then we'll go back to the beginning and nuance it. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, nor from any power or agency in the creature, co-working with his special grace, 
the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised Christ from the dead. And so like I said in paragraph one, the ending words there, by God's grace, by his grace, paragraph two opens up with affirming that yet again. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Again, remember chapter three, God's decree. God does all things according to the counsel of his will, including this act of effectually calling those whom he has predestined unto eternal life. And it reaffirms that by saying that this is not from any power or agency in the creature, in the one that's being effectually called, that it's grace alone, it's God alone. It's not of any power or any agency in the creature. Again, it reaffirms that again, co-working with God's special grace. We don't work side by side with God to merit our salvation or to earn our salvation. Why? It goes on to say the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. We've been reminded of this in the chapter on the fall, reminded of this in the fourfold state of the will in chapter nine, we were reminded of this in paragraph one of chapter 10, that the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Here we begin to see the work of effectual calling by the person of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who quickens and renews. He is thereby enabled. That is that person who was who was dead in their sins and in their trespasses, he is now thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace that is offered and that is conveyed in this call. And so this is the proclamation of the gospel that without, without being um, quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, we will never be able to answer the call of the gospel. We will, we will never be able to answer the call or to embrace the grace that is offered and that is conveyed in the proclamation of the gospel. And then it just goes on to uh, just affirm this power that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It says, it ends the paragraph two with this statement, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. And you know, we haven't looked at footnotes yet, but remember all the footnotes in the paragraph are the verses that they use. It's not a sum of all the verses, and it, sometimes it might not be the, the clearest of verses, but the footnotes there are verses that are utilized to point to where we get these doctrinal truths from Scripture. So, you know, for that last phrase, this power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So having established that effectual calling, or that God does indeed effectually call sinners, changing them, changing their hearts and bringing them from a state of sin to a state of innocence or to a state of grace, um, paragraph three takes a little pastoral pause and, and wants to acknowledge, I mean, hopefully it's nothing that we've had to wonder ourselves, but it does take a pastoral pause to acknowledge what of infants that die in infancy, either you know within the womb or outside the womb, and what happens of those who cannot, um, this would be those with disabilities mentally or you know, any, anything that would enable someone to not comprehend the gospel, what of them? And so let's consider now paragraph three. Paragraph three is short, but this is probably one of the hardest paragraphs within the entire confession. Not the, but one of the hardest paragraphs to consider. Um, I will note that it's primarily because the scriptures don't clearly teach what this... Um, Confession is going to affirm, but this confession just draws out from the truths of God's decree and the truths of how the Spirit works with regards to regeneration and the, the realities of sin and the guilt that we have in Adam and the fact that God is gracious and merciful. It draws from all those things and it comes to this pastoral conclusion in paragraph 3. So paragraph 3 reads this way. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. So go back to the beginning. There's at least some things that we can note here that are affirmations. Um, within the confession. It says, starts out by saying elect infants. What it's not saying is that all infants are elect. It does qualify infants with the word elect before it. So elect infants dying in infancy. Another thing that this um, paragraph does not do, it does not affirm what is the age of innocence. It does not do that. It just simply states elect infants and so I guess what it is affirming as is that based off of Scripture, again, and who God is and the work of the Holy Spirit, it, it, it is stating that the confession affirms that there, there has to be elect infants. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. And so one commentator notes, the potential salvation of infants relies on decree of God through the righteousness of Christ applied to them. And so if we were to imagine an infant, let's imagine an infant in the womb. The infant has not had time or, or even um, has not been in, been able to live a life that is that has sinned yet. Nevertheless, considering the confession and the things that are said before it, which is stating what the scriptures teach, everyone is born 
and even everyone is conceived with the guilt of Adam. So that a baby in the womb is just as guilty because they are of Adam. They are guilty of the wages of sin, namely death. And we know this because infants can die in the womb. So what the confession is saying here is that those infants that are dying in infancy can be regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. And, it, and they, they say this and because of the next phrase, because it is the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. This points to, or at least the footnote scripture for this is when, Nicodem, when Nicodemus asks, how can I be saved? And he says, you must be, Jesus says, you must be born again. And Jesus affirms that, you know, regeneration is the work of the Spirit. And you can try to chase the wind down just as good as you can try to chase down where and when and who the Spirit chooses to regenerate. And so it goes on to say, so also are all elect persons, and it qualifies who are these other elect persons, or those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Um, I'm going to just read a couple of quotes here. The statement of the confession seeks to address circumstances such as this. People with mental or physical disabilities were savable. Not that they would all be saved, but that they are savable. And in the same manner as if infants. If God's decree of election included them, if it does, his mercy would reach them. The spirit would regenerate them and Christ's righteousness would be imputed onto them. Another quote here, or we can even, a conclusion here of, of all of this would simply be this. The doctrine is simple. Elect infants and all other elect persons, both groups due to their conditions or disabilities, unable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word, are saved by God's mercy through the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit and by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Citing the words of Jesus' interview with Nicodemus recorded in John chapter 3, we are taught the Spirit works sovereignly according to God's good pleasure. Regeneration and salvation are thus again based in the decree of God. So this concurs with the language of chapter 3, paragraph 6 of God's decree. One thing to at least note what this is not saying this is certainly not saying or affirming the idea that those who live in places where the gospel has not been preached are saved apart from such proclamation of the gospel. This idea contradicts the statement within this paragraph and many other statements within the confession. So this paragraph is simply limited to those infants that die in infancy and those who with their mental faculties are, 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 are limited in, or limited in some capacity to be able to comprehend or understand the gospel and die in that state. Now let's consider paragraph four. Paragraph one through three really effectual calling unto the elect. Paragraph four is effectual calling to the non-elect. So let's read paragraph four and then I'll go back to the beginning and nuance it. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father 
They neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they ever so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion that they do pro profess. So here the confession is just, there's two different types of people group that make up the non-elect. There are those within the realm of where the gospel is proclaimed and there are those within the realm where the gospel is not proclaimed. For those of the realm that are where the gospel is proclaimed, it says others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word. That means that somewhere they, the word is being proclaimed to them or has been proclaimed to them. And they may have some common operations of the spirit. Maybe they profess to be Christians. Maybe they live Christian lives. Yet, not being effectually drawn by the Father, without that effectual calling, that drawing of the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ, and therefore they cannot be saved. And then there's this other people group, this other people group who do not live in a realm where the gospel is proclaimed. It says, much less. So if those in the realm of where the gospel is proclaimed, without the effectual calling, if they cannot come to Christ and be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved. Be they ever so, now here, no matter what, be they ever so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, according to the, you know, the moral law that's written on their hearts, and they, they, they look at creation, and they might even believe in a God. This confession affirms that. They live lives according to the light of nature and even that law of their own religion that they profess. They could be the most religious person within their religion, regardless of any of that. Because they are, of, they are not elect, they have not been effectually drawn by God, they cannot come to Christ and they will not be saved. So this ends our overview for today of chapters 9 of Free Will and chapter 10 of Effectual Calling. If you have any questions, feel free to message Luke or myself. Again, just a reminder, this is an overview of the confession. And one day, Lord willing, as a church planted within the Joliet area, a Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church, we are excited to slowly go through the confession at that time. I hope you have a nice day. And may the Lord be with you.